church. If you haven't figured it out yet, you showed up on Bluegrass Sunday. <laughs> no lie, this is, this Bluegrass Sunday, we do it a couple times a year, um, but this is the most um, approached I get, the most questions I get asked is about the sun. When are we doing Bluegrass Sunday? That's shocking. It is, it is shocking, but, uh, and we do this a couple times a year, you guys, because uh, a lot of us in this room grew up singing these songs, grew up listening to this kind of music. Um, and I know for me, so I grew up in uh, southwest Arkansas uh, outside of Texarkana. And uh, man, this, these songs remind me of God's faithfulness because I remember, um, I remember singing these growing up and I see how God's been faithful to me and to my family over the years. I'm getting the signal right now. If you can, scoot to your left. If you see any uh, seats, available um, to your left. If you could scoot over, we're gonna sing another song before we sit down, but it's gonna help the ushers uh, find some more room for people still walking in. So yeah, Garland, what do you think about Bluegrass Sunday? If you're new this morning with us, we don't always do this. Um, this is not what fellowships worship normally looks like, uh, but we do it a couple times a year. And here's my favorite thing about being up here, getting to lead the Bluegrass services. Uh, you should see 
some of your faces uh, on this day. So like some of you just light up when you know this is coming and we start singing. Others of you, you look at us with this face of like, I should have slept in today. Why did I show up? I knew this was gonna happen. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Uh, uh, no matter who you are in the room and even if you're a visitor or a guest with us, uh, one of the things that I love about you know this kind of music, this, the kind of music I listen to a lot actually is, uh, it, it's kind of just fun. And uh, you might find yourself having the desire to um, smile, <laughs> even, or like your foot may want to move a little bit, and I want to just invite you to embrace that and go with that uh, as we continue to sing this morning. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's sing together. This is a newer song, but we're going to sing it. I search the world, sing it up. Oh, I search the world. But it couldn't fill me Well, man's empty praise And treasures that fade Are never enough Think about these words Then you came along And you put me back together And every desire Is now satisfied here in your love Together we sing Oh, there's nothing Better than you There's nothing Better than you Oh, there's nothing Nothing is better than you To show you my weakness My failures and flaws Lord, you've seen them all And you still call me friend Cause the God of the mountain Is the God of the valley Your mercy and grace won't find me again. Here we go. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing. Nothing is You're the only one who can You turn mornings to dancing You give beauty for ashes You turn shame into glory You're the only one who can You turn graves into gardens Turn bones into 
And oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Well, nothing is better than you. One more time, sing it out. Lord, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. Lord, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. video. Over the next month, members of fellowship will have the opportunity to nominate new elders to the elder board. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of our body. We are not a church with elders. We are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. Here is what we are asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Second, if you do have a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Please read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. If you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick up one at the information desk in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the Qualifications of an Elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 11th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate the process of recognizing new elders. Finally, we thank Scott Thompson and Roger Hill for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented you and the Lord well during their tenure. When you see them, please thank these gentlemen for their faithful service. On another note, a few of the buildings on our Rogers campus need some attention. The Family Center was completed in 1991. The Worship Center and Foyer were completed in 1999. That's a quarter of a century. The elders have approved moving forward with much needed improvements to those buildings. The cost is estimated to be approximately $4.5 million. We don't want to go into debt for this project and we have proven on initiatives of much larger scale that we can get this done if all our congregations work together. My wife Denise and I will be setting up monthly recurring gifts to do our part and I hope you will too. No gift is too large or too small. And remember, it's not about equal giving, but equal sacrifice. On the giving page of our website, you will find capital improvements. You can make a contribution there or set up recurring gifts. We already have $1.3 million in donations, so we are well on our way. God continues to do great things through Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. 
thank you for playing an active role in this great ministry. God bless you, everyone. Well, good morning, fellowship. Welcome to Bluegrass Sunday. Got a confession for you. Uh, before I came this morning, I put on this shirt, and I looked at my wife, and I said, hey, should I tuck it in or leave it untucked? And she said, mm, you better tuck it in. And then I got here, Ryan kind of squinted at me and said, it's Bluegrass Sunday. You better untuck that shirt. We also like to refer to this as Silver Dollar City Sunday. Um, <laughs> as well. So welcome if it's your first time, first time here. Hey, there's, there's a couple of things I want to remind you of. Two things I want to remind you to pick something up and a reminder to drop something off. The thing to pick up, as we just talked about in that video, is our elder nominations. And so we have a sheet out there in the foyer. And you might not be interested in this at all, but this really does set the direction uh, of our church. And I encourage you just as a learning aspect and maybe even a quiet time aspect for, your, for you to go out to the information booth and pick this up and just even answering the question of, man, what does God look for when he, when he wants somebody to shepherd his church, to shepherd his people? And it's just a, a fascinating thing uh, uh, to go through. So I really encourage you to, this year to play a part in electing and nominating people who, who are going to lead uh, all three campuses that we have here in uh, Northwest Arkansas. The other thing that I encourage you to, to pick up is the Operation Christmas Child. If you're here last week, uh, last couple of weeks, you probably heard some incredible stories, uh, just life change stories. And I was blessed years ago uh, to be on a trip to, to Cameroon and uh, a church literally out in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road and got to meet a pastor, a uh, Cameroonian pastor, who he was selected by Operation Christmas Child to be one of the people who hand these out. And he began to just share with me the process of what he had to go through just to be, just to be the one who was chosen by them. It's something that they take very, very seriously. And so it's just a simple way that we can get the gospel into some really difficult areas uh, of the world. So I encourage you to participate in that. And finally, uh, something to, to drop off is uh, we can all feel it in the weather. Winter is coming. Uh, we felt it. We got a little taste of it last week. And, and just to remember that we have a lot of people uh, right here in Northwest Arkansas that are living outside. And so just being able to drop off some tents or some sleeping bags. I believe today is the final day uh, that you could do that, uh, or you could give some money so they could go out and purchase sleeping bags and tents um, to help out people in a very practical way. Um, and I do want to close with this. Um, I was talking with our global pastor who's on the Rogers campus uh, this past week, and he said, just looking at the current events of the things that are going on in the world, he says that a bunch of people are coming to him and, and talking to him and asking the question of like, man, do you, do you think the second coming of Christ, is it lining up? Is, is it going to happen soon? And he, and he told me something that was really sobering, and it's just great just even a great reminder for me, but he said, he goes, man, we got to realize uh, that as Christians, we look for this and we're told to look for this, but to understand that there's 3 billion people currently in the world who have not heard about the first coming of Christ. That there's 3 billion people who don't know that Jesus loves them. There's 3 billion people 
who don't know that he died on a cross for them. There's three billion people who don't know that forgiveness of sin is offered to them. There's three billion people who don't know that he's inviting them to be a part of his family. And, and it's, just, it's just so overwhelming. It's such a sobering reminder, but it, it's also just wanted a couple of things of encouragement. This last week, um, uh, or this last weekend, the past two days, NWA for the Nations, a local missions conference, had over 840 people attend to really just ask the, you know, answer the question of, hey, how can I play a part in reaching those three billion and last year, through the gift, through your generosity, there's a, a new missions course that was being develop, developed through a, a mission agency, and got to talk with those guys because we gave some money, Fellowship gave some money to help complete the project, and they've already had uh, 22 churches sign up to offer this course all across the nation, and I think that's just going to grow exponentially, that people are just going to just hear, how can we get involved to reach those 3 billion people? And so please join me as I just pray for the world and what is going on right now. Dear God, we come to you just desperately as we just turn on the TV every day or look on our phones and just see what is happening around the globe. And God, we just see so much just hate and anger, dear Lord, between people that you love. And God is just spreading everywhere. And God, this world desperately, desperately needs you. They need to know about your grace and your forgiveness, not just between you and them, but between each other, dear Lord. And so we pray that as a body, we would take that very seriously and that we would become involved with that. But God, we are just asking you to intervene and to bring peace to this world and to this situation. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks. As Pope was sharing those statistics and those numbers with us, um, for all of us in this room, we, we have heard the gospel, every single one of us. And if you haven't, you're about to hear it. Um, we can be thankful for that. And it causes us uh, to remind ourselves that there was a time that we didn't know the gospel. For those of us in here that are following Jesus, there was a time that we didn't know we needed a Savior. And so let's remind ourselves of that, that we're all sinners that fall short that need a Savior. So let's say this together. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. And just as we are as sinners in need of a Savior, we come before the Lord. And the Lord welcomes us. Let's sing this together. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed.
Christ came, he came as that savior that we needed. He died for our sins and he rose from the grave. And so church, if you believe in that life, death, resurrection, and you give your lives to following Jesus, then there is good news for us, church. There is hope for us. So together, let's stand and let's proclaim that good news. Church, believe it. Believe the good news that Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.
following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now, tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, good morning, fellowship. Bluegrass Sunday. All right. Man, I, uh, I love these Sundays. They, uh, they strike a really special place in my heart. Reminds me of my roots. I grew up in a uh, rural area of Missouri, about 45 miles south of St. Louis. But for five years of my life, I lived and went to college in Branson, otherwise known as God's Country. Another name for it is the Christian Vegas. Uh, wonderful place. And so hearing, hearing that fiddle and Watching Garland throw a banjo on, it just, just warms my heart. I love it. <clears throat> well, hey, if we, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Andy Petrie, and uh, I have the great privilege of being able to lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and I'm, I'm super excited to be here with you all this morning. Uh, when I heard that I was going to be teaching on Bluegrass Sunday, I couldn't help but think about the time that I spent in Branson and uh, what what that season of my life looked like. I thought about the, uh, the really small private Christian college that I went to. I thought about the go-kart track that I worked at some summers. I thought about the year that I worked at Bass Pro Shops while I lived in a trailer with a John Lennon impersonator. It was a wild time. It was a wild time. But more than anything, it got me thinking about my progression of my walk with Jesus. You see, college was the time where I really started making my faith my own, 
But I also started realizing that there was areas in my life and my heart that needed to change. Uh, by the time I was a senior, I was actually leading worship with the, the college ministry that I was a part of, and I was being entrusted with a lot of leadership that I probably wasn't ready for because there were things going on that I was hiding. One of those things was an over-decade-long addiction to pornography. It was something that I was honestly embarrassed by. I really wanted to change, but I was convinced that there's no way that I can tell anybody about it. And so I came up with a really great idea. I said, you know what? I don't need to tell anybody about it. I'll go and buy a book, read it, and that'll fix me because that's how that works, right? And so I, uh, I went to a little Christian bookstore in Branson, and I said, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to find a book on pornography addiction, and I found one, and I'm like, all right, this is the one I'm going to buy. And as I turned around to go to the counter, I noticed something. At the checkout counter, there was a girl working. She was around my age, and she was kind of pretty. And I thought to myself, oh, no. And as I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do, out of the corner of my eye, I see a sale rack, and I see another book on addiction, gambling addiction, and I think, yeah, that's close enough. And so I bought it, and because I don't deal with gambling, I never read it. <laughs> and so, you know, nothing really changed in my struggle for a couple years. In fact, nothing changed in my pornography addiction as long as I tried to do it on my own. You see, on my own, under my own best wisdom and understanding my own strength, it wasn't enough. And it wasn't until I actually came on staff here at Fellowship and I met a man named Tim. Tim was helping lead my first Celebrate Recovery Step Study. And that first week there, I heard him share part of his story and I couldn't believe it when he said that he had been a pastor for over 20 years. He shared about how his pornography addiction nearly cost him everything. And then he said something that I honestly thought he was lying. He goes, I've got nine years of complete and total freedom. And I wanted that. And so Tim quickly became one of my mentors. And Celebrate Recovery, we call them sponsors. And through his encouragement, through his example, through the way that he pointed me towards Jesus, he helped me find freedom. I've been walking in that for over seven years now. You see, following Jesus, thank you. thank you. Following Jesus was never meant to be done alone. We see it all over the New Testament. We see it with Jesus as he walks and, and does life with his disciples. We see it in the writings of the apostles as we notice that, notice that most of their letters are written to churches, not individuals. And we're gonna see it this morning in the words of Paul to the Philippians, as he encourages them to follow the example of godly men and women around them and the mindset of hope that we're called to spur one another towards Jesus with. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter three. We're gonna be anchoring our conversation today in, in verses 17 through 21. It's just five short verses, but man, Paul, he packs a ton into it. And he's talking mainly over three main things in this. First, he's gonna encourage the Philippians to, to join together after the models that they see around them and to fix their eyes on the way that they live. He's gonna give them a warning about the many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
what their lives are marked by. And then finally, he's gonna point us towards the mindset of our ultimate hope and reality in Jesus as we live this present life. And so jumping into it, verse 17, Paul starts off saying, join together in following my example. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. You see, Paul encourages the church to follow the example that's been given to him, but not just his example, but also the example of others like him. Most likely he's talking about people like Timothy and Epaphroditus, but surely others that lived and led there in the church of Philippi as well. You see, Paul knew that the, uh, the early church needed an example to follow. They, they needed practical guides for conduct. And even though Paul just laid out a lot of commands in Philippians so far on, on ways to live and conducts in this Christian life, he knew, as we know now, that actually some of the best ways for us to learn and live out these things is to have a, a real life example to follow in it. Somebody to put skin on these ideas that we can look at and go, oh, that's what that means. You see, head knowledge is only gonna take us so far. But when we have an example to follow somebody that's on the ground and in real life, it allows that head knowledge to seep down into our heart and crystallize there. And it starts to seep out in the way that we live. That's why Paul says, look, we've given you a model. We've given you a pattern to follow after. So keep your eyes fixed on them. And in the Greek, it's this idea that, that means make it your aim. Put these other people's lives in your sights and make it your aim to live like they do. And Paul gives us this command for a really specific reason. He connects this idea in, in verse 18 when he says that word for, that little transitional phrase that cues us in that what Paul is about to say is directly connected to what he just told us. He says, observe and pattern ourselves after the positive example that we have. And this is something that he's told his friends in Philippi many times before. He starts off in verse 18. He says, I've told you now and I'm telling you again. Which, by the way, are there any parents in the room right now? Does that sound familiar? Like, that reminds me of conversations that I'm having with my three-year-old right now. Like, look, bedtime happens literally every night. I love her. It's a struggle. But <laughs> I think Paul's language here is that of a really good spiritual father. He's saying, look, I, I've, I've told you this before. Looks like we got to go over it again, but I, I, it bears repeating. I know how easy it is to be pulled in the wrong direction. And then Paul's going to give them a really heavy warning that there are many, many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, Paul is setting up a distinction between these two verses. He's saying, hey, look, there are people that you should imitate and there's people that you shouldn't. Uh, my sponsor, Tim, tells me often that our lives can look like two different types of lights. One of them is a spotlight where our example shines towards others and it looks like Jesus and it's something to emulate. The other is a lighthouse, which sole purpose is signaling to ships, danger, don't go here. There's rocks, you're gonna crash. And Paul's given us a really dire description of some lighthouses that he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. And who are these enemies that Paul has in mind? Surely these are people on the ground in Philippi that the Philippians are rubbing shoulders with that, that are in danger of being influenced by them. 
Well, it's generally agreed that it's one of three groups of people. It could be that Paul is talking about some people that he's referenced so far in the letter, these people called the Judaizers. They're a group of extreme legalists who, who claim Jesus, but also claimed adherence to Jewish law. They were the Christ plus group. Paul referenced them earlier in chapter three when he called them dogs and evildoers. And so there's a good case to be made that this could be who Paul has in mind. Or it could be a group in Philippi known as the Antinomians, which that's just a fancy theological word that just means anti-law. These, these were a, another group of people that claimed Jesus as well, but they went to the other extreme. They, uh, they were all about self-indulgence, using the freedom of Jesus as a license to engage in whatever pleasure they desired. And it's a really good chance that this is actually who Paul has in mind. And then the third option, which I think is probably the least likely, but still an option, Paul could be just generally warning about the pull of the world and, and how we must be constantly on guard against it. But whoever it was, it, it is pretty clear that the people that Paul had in mind weren't necessarily the pagan culture that he had around them, but they were people that claimed Jesus but never actually surrendered their lives to him. They either became slaves of their own religious self-righteousness or their own selfish desires. There's a commentator, J.A. Motyer. He gives us some really good wisdom in approaching this. He says this. It says, in the long run, it makes no odds whom he's decrying. And it's better not to attach the verses too firmly in any situation in the past, for the threat is still present to the Christian, as we shall see. And the description is perfectly clear, even if the names are absent. You see, I believe Paul is more concerned about pondering this description than identifying the group. It's enough to know that they're enemies of the cross. That's a poignant enough description. And so let's look at how Paul talks about the characteristics of this group of people and, and four main things that he highlights. Talking about their destiny, what they worship, their conscience, and their focus First description, he says that their destiny is destruction. Uh, and he has here in mind that it's their ultimate end. It's the reality that their current life is gonna lead to nothing but eternal loss. But it's in addition to that, it's that the lives of these enemies, they don't bear any life-giving fruit. There's nothing that they're chasing after to give them hope and significance that is ever going to deliver. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs 14, 12, where it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads in death. Their destiny is destruction. Second, Paul says that their God is their stomach. Some translations say their belly. The idea here is that these people are slaves to their own appetites and desires, that they live their lives for and around what their flesh craves, which is the opposite of the teaching of Jesus that tells us to die to ourselves and take up our cross that the, the mind of Christ that says in humility to orient ourselves towards others. For the enemies of the cross, they don't worship the one who hung on the cross. They worship ultimately their own desires and live for whatever they think is gonna fulfill them. Third, Paul says that their glory is in their shame. For these folks, they, they find themselves celebrating and reveling the things that should be the most shameful. There's this constant self-justifying that's happening deep in their hearts that's saying, hey, nothing is wrong with this. 
In the recovery world, we call that living in a really deep state of denial in which we're constantly making excuses for our behavior and where we eventually get to the point where our conscience is so flipped that we convince ourselves that there's nothing to worry about. The things that should break their heart are the things that cause them to celebrate. And finally, Paul tells us about their focus, saying that their minds are on earthly things. The only things that really matter to them are the things of this world. And it calls attention to a mind that is refusing to acknowledge the reality of God and rejects Jesus as the ultimate king of their life. What's most important is what's sitting right in front of them. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And their mind is set on earthly things. It's pretty rough, ain't it? And chances are, if you're like me, some of us may have connected the dots of this description to some people in our life right now. I know when I first read that, what immediately came to mind was somebody close to me that wounded me really deeply when the reality of their hypocrisy came to light. I thought about my anger and the way that they hurt me and people around me and my family. And how some of these descriptions, I kind of delighted in the fact that they resonated. Now, I don't like that about myself. But I think if we're honest, we have a tendency to do that. You see, we don't have to look far in our world and in our culture to see these things pretty clearly. And chances are, there's been many of us in this room that have been hurt by people whose lives are marked in some way like that. So for me, I had a bit of a wrestling match with me, just thinking, what do I do with this? And then I noticed something that Paul said even before he gave a description of these folks. He said, I told you now before, and now I tell you again, even with tears. Paul wept for these enemies of Christ. He knew that they didn't know Jesus. He knew how anti-Jesus their lives were. And he didn't pull any punches in the description of them. But man, he wept for them. Seeing the reality and knowing the reality of their lives, it broke Paul's heart because he knew that these people that lived as enemies of the cross didn't have to. Even earlier in Philippians, Paul recounts his life when he lived as an enemy of the cross and taking pride in his own religious self-righteousness and the way that he persecuted others who claimed Jesus. Paul wept for the enemies of the cross because he knew he had once been one. And that's true for every single one of us, right? Before I ever came to know Jesus, this was me. My destiny was destruction. My God was my stomach. My glory was in my shame. My mind was set on earthly things. And the only reason that that's not me now or any of us now if we're a follower of Jesus is because of Jesus. It's because we've been reconciled to him through his death and it's because he's changing us now as we follow him. Paul said as much in Romans chapter five, verse 10, where he says, for if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, this description that Paul gives of the many who live as enemies of the cross is not meant to be just a description. 
It's also meant to be a reminder and a mirror for those of us who have been saved by Jesus. Because the reality is that even after we come to know and follow Jesus, we still wrestle with being pulled in this direction. Now, just to be clear, if we are in Jesus, we cannot lose our salvation because our salvation is based on faith alone and the grace alone of Christ alone. But we all still wrestle in this life with a sin nature. Just because we know Jesus, it doesn't mean we're perfect and it doesn't mean that we're not susceptible into falling into some patterns of some dangerous living. And I know for me, it it doesn't take long for me to look and see what that has looked like in my life. You know, I was 20 years old when I started leading worship in college, and I'd, I'd lead services and talk about how Jesus was all that we needed, but, but I lived in so many ways as if my God was my stomach. I was justifying and rationalizing a pornography addiction, and addiction or, or in, in addition to a lifestyle of partying and alcohol abuse and a, a lot of really unhealthy relationships in my life. I think about coming on staff here at Fellowship and how I've wrestled at times with feeling like I need to prove like I deserve to be here and and try and strive for earthly and worldly success and praise of people, how my mind can be so fixed on earthly things, how my sense of control in my own kingdom gets challenged every week as I parent two kids that are three and 18 months old. What about you? What does this look like in your life? Could it be the case that maybe God is intending this to also be a mirror to you saying, hey, is there something in here that you need to pay attention to? A friend of mine at Celebrate Recovery early on told me that the moment that I put myself above a sin is the moment I can find myself falling into it. We need humility to know that we still need Jesus even after we come to know Jesus. And by the way, here at Fellowship, we want you to know we're aware that every single person in this room, we've got something that we're dealing with on some level. We're all broken people. And you do not have to hide your brokenness here. If you feel like there's something in your life that you've been struggling with for a long time, we wanna come alongside you in that. We wanna live in community with you in that. We want to help you to find healing in that, whether it's mental health struggles, insecurities that you're dealing with, unforgiveness, betrayal, bitterness, struggles with pornography or alcohol or drugs, marital struggles, grief, or anything else that you can think of. We want you to know you're not alone and you don't have to hide. It actually is okay to not be okay. If you need some resources, we would love to come alongside you. I want to encourage you to come and check out Celebrate Recovery here on a Friday night. We meet every Friday night at 7 o'clock over in the Student Center. Get plugged in to a step study. Check out one of CR's open share groups. Uh, Join a community group. Check out our counseling center here at Fellowship Fayetteville. We're not alone in what we're dealing with, and there's still hope. Because of Jesus. God sees you and I right here where we're at. He loves us where we're at, but he loves us far too much to leave us where we're at. And we've got a hope that we can cling to in it. And that hope is actually how Paul lands the plane on our passage today. He gives us a warning and a description of the many who live as enemies of the cross. And then he steers us towards a mindset and ultimate hope 
that we need to keep walking in this life together. In verse 20, after saying that for the enemies of the cross, their mind is set on earthly things, he gives us another distinctive phrase saying, hey, there's there's a line that he's drawn between them and us. He says, but for us, our citizenship is in heaven. And by the way, we are awaiting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming back. You see, our citizenship is not of this world. And our mindset and our hope is towards a savior that is coming back. Paul is laser focusing us on the mindset and the hope that distinguishes us as friends of the cross. He says our citizenship is in heaven. You know, being a citizen in the, in the Roman Empire, it brought with it uh, certain rights and, and privileges. And, and there was an expected allegiance to the empire, to the Caesar, and, and to live for the well-being of the city in which you lived in. And it's funny that Paul is using some really clever wordplay here in the titles that he's using for Jesus because that that Greek word savior and that Greek word Lord, they were actual titles that the emperor Nero at the time used to refer to himself and that he was referred by. You see, Paul is saying, look, you may be an earthly citizen of Rome, but that is not where your focus and devotion and worship get directed to. Your true citizenship is in heaven, not Rome. Your savior is Jesus, not Nero. You see, we live with a greater allegiance. We have a greater king that we serve. And we're awaiting that king to come back and establish his kingdom. You see, Jesus came once. He reconciled to us, uh, us to himself. He de- defeated death. He dealt with the penalty of our sin, but yet still we live in a sinful world that sits between the victory of the cross and the coming kingdom of Jesus. We live in this strange already but not yet reality and Paul is saying stay focused on what's coming. And what is that? Paul is focusing our mind on the ultimate end and victory of our salvation. He has in mind the resurrection of the dead in the last verse here. The ultimate end of our salvation that come that happens when Jesus comes back and and he gives a really awesome description of what that, uh, that resurrection looks like. He says, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Isn't that awesome? Now, if you're like me, you may have missed how cool that is. So what is Paul actually saying here? He's saying this is what the reality of the resurrections of the saints is going to look like for you and I. This is the final piece of the process of salvation. Now, if if you want to sound really smart at lunch today, let me give you three big theological words that outline the process of salvation. The first is justification. The second is sanctification. And the third is glorification. Justification is is a one-time event that happens in the life of a believer when we place our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Justification means that we've been justified before God, and as Garland said last week, our legal debt of sin has been paid. We've been forgiven and freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the ongoing process in this life whereby Jesus continues to break the power of sin as we follow him day by day. 
It's the way that Jesus brings healing and freedom progressively throughout our life as we surrender to him. And by the way, just a little side note, this is what recovery is all about. Uh, Little joke we always have, celebrate recovery would actually be called celebrate sanctification if it looked better on a t-shirt. It's just the reality of it. And then the third thing is what Paul has in mind here. The final piece, glorification, which happens when we die and go into the presence of Jesus and then culminates when we are finally resurrected. Justification is us being freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is us continually being freed from the power of sin. And glorification is us being freed from the presence of sin. It's where our ultimate hope lies. It's the last chapter of this story. Paul literally says in the text that our bodies of humiliation, these lowly bodies, these physical bodies that are so susceptible to pain and disease and sickness and aging and the pull of sin will be made new and glorious like the body of Jesus is right now. Now, for that phrase, we don't know exactly what all the implications of that means, but here's what we know it does mean. One day there'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more death. One day we won't have this inward pull towards sin and things that seek to destroy us. One day our bodies will be made completely new and freed from the presence of sin. Take a moment and and really think about that. For me, I can't help but think about my dad. I love my dad. He's been an incredible model for me. He's got a strong faith in Jesus. And for the past 10 years, he's wrestled with a disease called ataxia, which has severely damaged his mobility, and it's left him walking with a walker permanently. And because of this, because this is reality, because this is truth, because this is assured, one day I'm going to watch my dad run to Jesus. This is our hope. This is the truth. You ever thought about that? The presence of sin will be gone. Church, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the ultimate end of our salvation. This is why we eagerly await a savior. This is why Paul says to die is gain. And this is a promise that isn't an empty promise. It's not a probability. It's not a guess. It's a guarantee. Paul says that Christ will do this by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And when he says the Lord Jesus there, that Greek word, it's the word kyrios. It means the sovereign. It's the one who rules. You see, Jesus is the real Lord. Jesus is the real king and ruler of this world. And by the power which, with which he rules, it's a complete power that enables him to bring everything under his control. In other translations, it says it's the power that enables him to bring all things subject to himself. See, his plan won't be thwarted. What he's planned to do will come to pass and one day he will make all things new. He'll subject all things to himself and sin will be dealt with once and for all. And Paul reminds us of this. Paul sets this mindset and this hope in front of us because when we focus on our future reality, it changes how we view and engage and live our present life now. 
It gives us a hope to push one another towards as we seek to emulate the lives and the models around us. It's a goal to press on towards as we fight the temptation to fall back into those other pulls that we have. It gives us a proper lens to view today as we push each other forward. Paul's encouragement to the Philippians and to us today is this. Live the present life as one who believes our future reality. Live today with our destiny in mind. Ask God to show you areas of your life through the mirror of his word where you're getting off track. And when you see those areas, don't try and do it alone. It doesn't work too well, I can attest. But find somebody ahead of you on this road and imitate them. Find somebody who believes the beauty of the gospel. Model your life after them. And a real simple way to do this, this week, make a list of a couple people whose lives and walks with Jesus that you really admire. And before the end of the year, grab coffee with one of them. Ask them to show you what it's looked like for them to walk with Jesus, how that might look in your life. And if you're needing people to come alongside you in that and you feel like you're alone in this, we want you to know you're not alone anymore. We're with you. Encourage you. Talk to us out at the booth. Join a community group. Come to Celebrate Recovery on Friday night. Join a men's study or a women's study. We're in this together. And together we have a hope of the reality of our future. A hope that cannot be thwarted. A hope that pushes us towards the goal of Jesus as we walk alongside each other in this world. Let's celebrate that together. as we respond in worship.
God sealed the promise Your buried body began to breathe Out of the silence The roaring lion declared the grave no claim on me Then came the morning That sealed the promise Your very body Began to breathe And out of the silence The roaring lion Declared the grave Has no claim on me Thank you. 
today with, with that hope, with that courage, with that steadfastness as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter uh, of our faith. If you need prayer this morning, right through those doors up the stairs. If you want to take communion, right through those doors up the stairs. Fellowship Fable, we love you. Have a great week. See you next week.